Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create la tua vita. Create your life. On your life. You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create la vie. Create your life. Create your life. Beautiful people, welcome to the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown, and we have the opportunity to have Mr. Evan Davis here today. Evan, please say hello to the Create Your Life series family. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here. In case you don't know, Evan is actually one of my former bosses, but also a legend, in my opinion, somebody who's very, very amazing and has done amazing things in the garment industry. Uh, Evan, can you tell us just a couple of the companies that you've uh, had the opportunity to work for and run? I have. Blessed to be the founder of the following companies, Mecca USA, Aniche, Parish Nation, Staple, and Born Fly. Wow. Those are some amazing companies. And so, Evan, which one of those did you start out with? The first company was called Mecca USA. Okay. How did you get started with that? Um, we launched that in 1994. Um, I was working in the apparel industry in sales, and I noticed that there was a total current of the hip-hop generation that was really starting to, to bubble and become be a voice that really needed to be heard. So we decided that there were other brands out there like Carl Kanai and Fat Farm that we thought that if we could do our little own spin on design and market it correctly, that we thought that we could, could have something. That's saying when I say we, I'm talking about myself and my partner, Tony Shellman, who was also working with me at a different company. So we went down to the drawing board, we, des- we drew a line, we designed it, and we just we, we we went to many many people to try and have them um, finance us or back us or whatever the colloquial term is, and we were not very successful. We went into maybe I remember one day walking into 50 showrooms in a building and showing them boards of what we were going to do, and people like not interested, not interested. Why don't you leave your boards here, which we wouldn't do. So they, we saw that there was a glimmer of like hope in the fact that they kind of liked what we, the designs, but they didn't really felt like two young kids coming into them and asking for financing unannounced was really the way to go. We finally found somebody who was the International News Corporation, and they were based out of Seattle, Washington, and they gave us a licensing deal, whereas upon they were like, look, we'll sample, do whatever you want. We'll pay you 6%. We keep everything. Wow. We decided at that point, you know what, we'll give it a shot. First year wasn't very successful. We did like a million two, uh, not very profitable. And then for some reason, some being the clothing design sort of took off a little bit, as well as the fact is my partner, Tony Shellman, was able to get one of our soccer jerseys in the One More Chance video from by Biggie. 
And at that point, my life somewhat changed because that video came out. And mind you, this was a time where in videos, there was no YouTube. This was the 90s, whereas upon like, you went home and you watched Rockbox and Ralph McDaniels and you watched video shows and you had the attention span and whatever you put on was ever in these videos became so important. It became part of the fabric and the culture. And here like was this soccer jersey that we made that said Mecca on it. It wasn't even the best soccer jersey, but it was in the video. Biggie had a scene where the guy was wearing it next to him. And before you know it, like the company just exploded. Probably better lucky than good. However, I'll take it either way. Yeah, that's a great product placement. And <laughs> the, ne- the best part about it at that point, Biggie said to Tony, "Is like, you know what? I can't fit in that soccer jersey, but I'd like you to make one. We actually made a, a Biggie soccer jersey. It said Smalls on the back, you know, with Mecca, and it was number 15. And to this day, there's not a day that goes by that, you know, you hear a Biggie song and you're, you're just, like, proud of the fact that you made him a soccer jersey. And it was just an awesome experience. And at that point, once he started wearing it and he did his press on it and then Puff was wearing it and it just snowballed and then we had this incredible company. But in Business 101, the key is to have a good contract and attorney. Well... Mm. Tony and I, we had a handshake agreement and with, the, with International News Corporation, right. and the royalty that they were paying us was very good when it was a small amount, but wasn't very good when it became a bigger amount. So mm. as something said, we didn't have an ironclad contract. We had more of a handshake agreement, and they got a little funny with the payments. And we decided that, you know what, this isn't the environment for us. This was so easy because we built one brand, we can do it again. Very naive at the time to think you can do something twice. However, we felt that this is something we could do again. We left Mecca. We gave them the brand. They actually paid us somewhat. They didn't pay us all of what they owed us. They paid us somewhat of what they owed us. We separated in amicable terms, but you know, we decided to move on and venture into something else with an ironclad contract because it's important to be able, if you're going to do the work, you deserve to have peace of mind. Mm -hmm. So that was very important to us. We then partnered with a company called Fila USA, and we founded the brand called Aniche. I mentioned Aniche before? Oh, no, did I forget? But the funny part is, now you're talking about Aniche? Yeah. I literally was in high school researching Aniche Researching the fact that you guys were bought by Fila, I mean, were um, under Fila because I, I like the Grant Hills, the Olympic right. Grant Hills, like in 96. I used to literally like read you guys' website and say, I, I want to intern for them, I want to work for them. Like, this is like back in the day, I was literally saying that. So it's amazing to be sitting here across from you. Please tell, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how amazing it is. I, you know, I. You know, it's just, at the end of the day, it's just clothes. But I want to let everybody know that Evan is extremely modest. So he's going to say that it's not amazing, but I've seen this guy in action day in and day out. He's amazing, and he's built some and done some amazing things. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so we decided at that point that we were going to start another brand, and we partnered with Fila, and then we came up with the with the moniker um, Nietzsche, which was the phonetic spelling of New York City. Some people used to call it Nice Nietzsche. It's funny, just the other day I told somebody one of the brands I used to work with, and they were like, they, they, they looked at me and they said, you really pronounce it a Nietzsche? I thought it was E-Nice. And that you know, was everything we tried to create was the, you know, the play on words to get things, you know, 
get things buzzing a little bit. And at this point, you know, we had learned our craft a little bit better. You know, hip hop in America was was definitely beyond exploding at this point. I mean, you had shows like New York Undercover. You had, you know, a lot of influences and, you know, a lot of the artists were wearing stuff and a lot of artists started to, you know, started to actually have their own brand. So it was really just a time where, like, America was really consumed with this clothing and this lifestyle and we try to fill the need in the void and we were lucky enough to have something that connected with people and they started buying it and wearing it and it grew to be a I would like to think a quite successful company successful it's, it's iconic it's like legendary in hip-hop how did you guys come up with the Eniche name was there like a group discussion I remember on the website it said that you guys had scribbled on a napkin at the uh at a restaurant, like how did it actually happen? I'm just curious if that was right or how did it... I mean, with all due respect, the third partner in this was Lando Felix, and we started playing around with names and we just kept writing down names. And I think that it it came from the 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 ticket baggage where it would say like New York City and then it would be like an E on for East Coast, and then I think it just you saw that and then it was like, you know, E N Y the phonetic spelling of New York City. N-Y-C, so E-N-Y-C-E, right. and then because Fila, they had an Italian hedger heritage, we liked to play on the fact that it was Aniche, it had like a little Italian flair to it. <laughs> I mean, silly stuff at the time, you know, you think you're, you think you're in there like naming your company as if you're, ca- you know, you're curing cancer, stuff that all <laughs> seems like so much more important than it really is. I mean, but a good name is is important. I don't think this was the best name, but at this point, like we had, we had a really solid foundation of design and we had a very strong partner who helped us, and we had a good marketing team. So we had all the things that it would probably take to have a successful company. And, you know, having, you know, as I said before, a great partner like Fila who can help you with the operations and the sourcing, it made a lot of things easier. I think at this point with our previous track record from Mecca, we got to cut the line, so to speak, on a few things because, you know, they were very interested in having us and making sure that we were successful. So it was a very good partnership to partner with a big company. So in addition to being the CEO, you also are very active and hands-on with the process of garments being created. Can you speak to what your uh, position is when it comes to the day-to-day operations of the company? Because um, you're a merchandiser, correct? Yeah, when you say, you know, when you say day-to-day operations and all that stuff, it sounds, it sounds like a very, you know, very intricate thing, but at the end of the day, what I really am is I'm a merchandiser. I like to work with the designers and watch, you know, try and help cultivate trends and make sure that, you know, you can put things from a design point of view into something that's saleable. One of the things that, you know, a lot of the designers are taught in design schools, they fundamentally know how to like draw garments, but they also have a vision of what they want to lead in the marketplace. And so I'm somebody who tries to give a little bit more reason and use something that could have a little bit more saleability and just do things in correct color palettes and little fundamental things that I like to think helps the process. So at the end of the day, I'm really just a merchandiser and I kind of wing it at all the other aspects. I've seen you in action where you have this talent to not only manage the merchandising, but you have this great um, way of motivating your staff. Can you speak to some of the some of the qualities that have helped you to become this person, or some of the things, the lessons that you learned? Because you were working under someone else at, at one point as well, right? So, what are some of the key lessons that you learned to bring you to this point? I mean, point? the most important thing I think for me in trying to to deal with people is to you know treat people as I want to be treated. Just because you know I've you know 
I've had low-level jobs inside companies. I've started off as an assistant salesperson. I've, you know, d done design. I've had, you know, I don't want to say low-level because it's not low-level. That's the wrong adjective. I would like to say entry-level. Mm -hmm. So I've, you know, I've pretty much done a lot of different jobs, and I always didn't like the way I was treated or spoken to. So I've always tried, in most cases, to be able to treat people the way I want to be treated. And I think that's that doesn't matter if you're talking about business or the game of life. You should treat people with the same respect that you want to be treated with. And I think that, you know, that's my first fundamental rule that I have. You know, I think it's very important to do that. The other thing is, which is kind of counterintuitive to what I just said, is you also cannot be afraid to leave the room and people call you a jerk. You know, I also have a role where if you have many employees that you can't always be well-liked. You always got to treat people with the same respect and treat them the way you want to be treated. But it's also very important to get your point across and to be able to lead them. And sometimes that's speaking to them in a way that is encouraging, but honest and upfront. So if you, for instance, if you don't really like a design, sometimes you have to really be honest about that. And you sometimes you got to hurt people's feelings and you got to be able to leave the room and they'd be like, wow, he was a jerk. So, you know, I'm okay with that. We're all in the process of making sure that you're making a better product. So, you know, yeah. when you, when you make these suggestions or you kind of have to tell an employee something like that, you still build them up at the same time. Later yeah, I mean, on, perhaps. businesses, you know, you got to take care of the business first. If you're seeing something you really don't think is right or correct or going in the right way, you know, you have to be upfront about it. And you know, sometimes you're going to hurt some people's feelings because they've worked hard on something. They're presenting something. They put a lot of passion into it. So I try and be, res I try and respectfully disagree. <laughs> but you also see sometimes that you see that, you know, you can see a little bit of the hurt on their face and the disappointment and stuff like that. And you know, when you leave that room that they're probably like, wow, that was jerky of him. But it's important if I really don't believe in something and I don't think it's going to work, you know, I can't go through the, you know, I can't go through the expense or the time of, you know, sampling and designing and paying for it and having people work on something that I don't think is going to be productive, you know, at the end of the day to the business. So now you're here, you're at a Nietzsche and Nietzsche is blowing up mm -hmm. and you guys are basically killing the game. What is, what is the sustainability of that look like? Like, what is it that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis um, in order to make sure that you guys keep the fire, keep the flame at that point? Um, I don't know. I, a lot of people have a lot of different philosophies, like on brands and what, what we do. I think in the young men slash contemporary, you know, urban, whatever you want to call it, skate, you know, uh, street, whatever it is, I think you have a life cycle of 10 years. And, you know, if you get more than that, you're extremely blessed because I think tastes change and generations changes. So I said to myself, if I get 10 years out of, Nietzsche, I'm going to be extremely blessed, but I'm also going to be smart enough to know that you go through a certain brand cycle in this. The people, you know, if it's successful, they keep wanting to buy more, and then their levels of supply and demand get a little bit out of whack. And before you know it, it's just, you know, it's just not as cool as it once was. And, and you know, and that's okay, because you have to, if you can understand that and know that you can build something next after that, then, then it all works. You know, mm -hmm. I've never been one, you know, to me, I've had, you know, quite a few different brands and I don't, you know, I love them all. But the fact is, I want to take them from what I consider my personal brand cycle of 10 years. And if I get more than that, that's fine. But I'm also willing to leave it behind and start something new. And I don't know if a lot of people look at things like that because it's like, wow, you did so much heavy lifting. You built a brand, you have a foundation, you have employees, but, you know, those, you know, the people that helped you along the way with those brands, they can shift into other brands. At the end of the day, 
I look at it like I'm in the clothing business. I'm trying to supply a market, and I want to supply it in the best form that I possibly can. So getting back to you know that 10-year cycle, I sat in there, and I said to myself, I'm just going to try and have the best brand I can for about 10 years you know, and see what happens. But you know, in all honesty, a lot of that stuff was extremely overwhelming at the time. I mean, I was a young kid. We started Nietzsche with you know, three, four employees. And how old were you when you started Nietzsche? Uh, 96, I'm 53 now. If you do the, the quick so math, you is, you know, the quick math, yeah, I'm old. I'm an old man no, at this not. point at, you know, so it's 2006 to 20 years ago. I mean, I guess I started at 36. Wow. I mean, rather, I'm sorry, 33. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I, it, I had a staff of 40, 50 people, all different departments. I mean, it was a, it was a little and bit you were overwhelming. Overseeing all of that. It was over. Yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming. I mean, I had good people around me that you know helped along, but I was pretty overwhelmed. But I always try to say to myself, if I just keep the product strong, mm-hmm. uh, it'll it'll masquerade a lot of the mistakes that I don't know. Wow. Because a lot of the stuff you were just learning about, you know, you just didn't, you know, you didn't know. I mean, whether it was some of it, you know, sourcing issues or you know logistical issues, getting goods through customs, duty rates taking advantage. I mean. I wish I knew now, I wish I knew then what I know now. It would have been a lot easier, but they just, you know, they just don't let you know everything at the right times, you know? (laughs) Okay. Wow. So a 10-year run. So how long did you actually run with Mecca before you moved on and transitioned? Mecca was two years, and then I think in Nietzsche, we started in 96, Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, it was in 96, and I think I left in 2006, so it was 10 years. Mm -hmm. We sold it to Liz Claiborne in 2003, and I spent three years there, and... After you, after you sold it, you spent another three years there? Yeah. Because they had to have you, they needed someone like you to, to run it, because you're, ultimately, it's your brainchild, it's your baby, right, Nietzsche? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, nobody's irreplaceable. You know, as many Here's people, modesty, many people, no, but many people could do the same job and, and whatever. Many it is. people haven't done what you've done, Evan. It's, I'm sorry. Like, I've I, had a lot of great people around me. I appreciate the kind words, but it's not. It, trust me, it's not. It was not a solo show at all. There's a lot of people that have you know that have really really helped me. A lot of smart people. Whether it was the CFO at Fila, whether it's at my current brand right now, I have a, a lot of production people. A lot of people that helped me along the way, but. Yes, I like to think when they when Liz Clayble born it, they made sure that I would stay there for three years, and they did that, and they were wonderful people. I'm glad that they bought the company, but that corporate lifestyle of what Liz Claiborne was, and you know, and their culture of what is, it wasn't a fit for who I am. So I did my time there, and I I didn't dislike it, I didn't love it, but I knew it wasn't where my future holds, and I knew that for me. The fun in this business is really starting brands and cultivating something from nothing into something. That's what I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I knew for me it was time to start another brand. Hence, after Nietzsche, I started a brand called Parish Nation. How long did it take you? How long was your transition from Nietzsche to uh, starting Parish? I think I was home for like three weeks in between. And then I just was like, I wanted to get to work. And I started cultivating ideas, trying to build a team. And then I put together some people and we started Parish. How many people from Nietzsche did you bring over to Parish? Like, because you had all of these great people working for you. Did you bring people over to Parish to work with you? Um, I brought a few, not everybody. I mean, my goal wasn't to destroy Nietzsche and to take all their key people. But there were some people that along the way that, you know, felt a little bit like I did and felt like, you know, we got in this to definitely work. But have fun. There's one thing about a corporate environment is you have to really embrace that. If you don't embrace that, it can really become discouraging. And a lot of people like that because everything, you know, is very 
you know, is very black and white, but, you know, we're in a creative business and a lot of people don't want to adjust to that and have that. So there were some people that I knew that probably were going to move along anyway. Mm -hmm. So we, we got together and we started the brand Parish Nation. You keep describing the corporate lifestyle. So what is it? What is the lifestyle like under Evan Davis in, in the workspace? What is that? creative lifestyle look like? What is the difference between a corporate lifestyle and Absolutely. what I, I'm probably not correct for a business show because if you, you're talking about business, you're supposed to talk about the bottom line. But quite mm -hmm. honestly, I am very interested in the bottom line, but it's not the most important thing to me. What you do to achieve your bottom line is most important. I think for me, I'm okay with everybody laying it out, doing the best they can and where it falls, it falls. You know, I don't, you know, if you have an issue Whereas upon goods get, merchandise gets stuck in customs and you might lose a, let's say a $300,000 order. It's happenstance, man. And, you know, like I don't want to sit here and figure out like how to just try and make that up within the next 24 hours. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Like corporately, you have to deliver a bottom line. Your, your, your budget is what it is and you need to meet it. And it's very serious. And, and if you should fall short, you know, there, you know, there becomes a lot of, you know, a lot of disarray, and I can't blame it. It's just for me, in the clothing business, I can only control what I can control, and I also don't wanna, I wanna just do the best I can, and at the end of the year, be proud of what I do, and I think for there, corporately for me, I just, it, it just became, you're always worrying about the finance. It doesn't allow you to take chances. It doesn't allow you to like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna try this trend. You become a little bit straight down the middle, a little bit too much fastball because yeah. you're worried if something doesn't work and you're not gonna deliver on your bottom line. And you know, that becomes a little bit draining after a while. But some people thrive in that and say to themselves like, wow, that's where I get the fun. I met the number. You know, for me, you know, it's important to be profitable. I'm not in business to lose money, but not at the expense of, you know, it'd be consuming your whole day. And I think that that was the only environment where it became extremely important to, you know, to make sure that, you know, you're going to meet your numbers. And if you don't meet your numbers, you're going to have meetings about meeting. <laughs> Why are you not going to meet the numbers? <laughs> meetings me about meetings. Yeah. So it just became, you know, it just became a little, you know, a little overwhelming for me. Okay. So what it sounds like to me is control what you can control, but also be adaptable. Right. Be, be able to adapt to what is going on and not spend too much time thinking about the losses, but really move forward. It right. sounds like that's what you're saying. What kind of goals or how do you incentivize your employees to meet the goals for the year? From when I'm working with my employees, I just ask that they do their best. I mean, you know, we, we sit with a budget in the beginning of the year and we do our best to, to, to meet it. And as long as they do their best, keep on the timelines and don't do what I would consider anything silly. There's a lot of times like in, in the business now, especially it's just happenstance. You know, you could you could have the most beautiful line and you can have hot weather all the way through October, but you have the nicest fleece or sweatshirts in the market, but nobody buys them in September because the weather was too warm. Now, is that their fault? So you didn't get, you know, you didn't get the sell through and then people might get backed up. Well, these are, I try and look at like what's happenstance or what you can control. Trust me, if they're putting out design that's that's not very strong and we're having an issue with that, then, you know, then that's a problem, an issue. We have to look at that. But some of it, it just isn't, you know, some of it is just business, you know, environment. What's what's going on? We're in an ever-changing world right now, whereas upon, like, you know, brick-and-mortar shopping is not the, not 
not what it once was. So we have to be more adaptable and get more, you know, and have more of an e-com presence, you know, and while we're doing that, were we good at it? Were we good enough in making the turn? You know, you got to ask yourself some of the questions. So for me, I always try and treat all my employees with fairness and really just look things at, you know, as objectively as I possibly can and say to them like, okay, what was their responsibility? Where did they fall short? And just be honest and direct about them, you know, and in a way, I feel that by being as honest and direct with them, it's giving them the chance to be as successful. They're not always the easiest conversations to have. However, they're the important ones because how's somebody going to grow? It's always easy to always pat someone on the back, but you know, you know, you got to always somewhat tell people like, man, this you could have done this better. You could have tried this a different way, and you know, so they can grow as well. I hope that answered your question. No, you know? I definitely answered my question, and you raised another one. You went from primarily brick and mortar business to now the e-commerce space, which is huge. What has that transition been like for you? I know it's been a few years, of course, that since e-commerce has exploded, but what has that transition been like and how important have partnerships been for you uh, with making this happen? For me, it's been it's been extremely exciting because it just puts something new. And, you know, you start doing this for a lot of years. As as, as I mentioned before, I'm 53 years old. I started brands in 94. Doesn't look 53. So it's... it's it's been a long time, and when I started, it was just all brick and mortar, and a lot of the brick and mortars in the department stores have shrunk down, and your chain stores have shrunk down, and then you had this new medium that developed over the past, you know, the past decade, which is e-com, and now, you know, it's gone from, like, percentages that, you know, used to be a couple of percentage points into 14 to 18% of all retail, you know, in America, and it's... It's, it's fun, it's exciting because it's new. So I'm really enjoying learning about it, learning at the metrics, looking at the different customers that, you know, that on the way they shop, how they hit your website, how many hits. And, you know, it, it's tough for me as an older guy to try and keep up with all the young people and the terminology, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can and trying to learn, you know, this. But I find it exciting to do because it's, it's a little bit different and, you know, you never stop learning. How do you maintain being a CEO? You're merchandising all of the product that's coming through here, and you're staying on top of the trends. Like, what are your days looking like? Like, when are you starting, and, like, when do you take time to sit and read about the trends? Or do you have somebody in the office who's sending you reports on these trends and things like that? Or are you literally going out and figuring out these things on your own? It's a combination. I, all my design staffs, you know, they go ahead and they do research. Research used to be a lot more difficult with pre-internet because you'd actually have to go out and spend hours like shopping stores and looking at stuff. Now, I mean, it's everything is so readily available to you. You know, you can literally spend a couple hours online and be like, wow, I can't believe how much I've just got. So I have a design staff that does that. Um, I also have some interns, you know, especially in the summer, and interns that I, you know, as I like to get, I usually like to get them involved, and because quite honestly, those are like students, and they could be seventh seniors in high school or first year in college, and they, you know, they're quicker at doing this than anybody, and they know the trends, and I try and dial into them, and you know, really pick their brain, and also for me, if I, and when I go home at night. You know, and after everything is done, I'll spend like an hour or so, a couple of nights a week on just looking at certain websites that I think, you know, show some newness and freshness, um, you know, that I enjoy. I mean, you know, I don't just go home and just turn off my brain. I wish I could, but, you know, I, uh, I still, you know, I got a laptop and I just, you know, I just check things out. What is your educational background? I went to the University of Arizona and I'm a finance major. Okay. And how do you feel like being a finance major has helped you in what it is that you do now? I think it's very important for people, for our listeners to understand that sometimes you major in something and you can be working in a different field, but it all still comes together. So, Well, 
you know, the, the financial background doesn't really help me much with the creative side. I mean, I like to think of myself as both left brain and right brain, although I'm not exceptional at either, but I think it's a very, very good combination because one gives you a little bit of a creative side, which is good. But where it came together for me is that when we started working and having a business, whether it was Mecca or Aniche, and every month, you know, the companies give you a profit and loss statement, and it was like, okay, here it is, and we got to prepare a budget. I was able to do that. It, was, it wasn't so foreign to me, so it really helped me understand the business. And, it, you know, when you start to understand the business from a financial point of view, it really, it really can help you. It can really, you can really start to see you know, you got to see like where your weaknesses are, you know, from a whole organization, how much you spend on something, you know, what you're paying in overseas freight. You know, I mean, I could tell you the first time I ever looked at a provident loss statement for, for Mecca and we were airing all our goods in the time and I, we were spending like a 9% on just went to the airplanes. I was, you know, on flying goods in because our calendar wasn't correct. And, you know, when you see that column and it's like air freight and it's 9% of your whole volume, you're like, there's got to be a better way. Well, I was like, what, what do we do about this? And somebody was like, well, you got to advance your timeline so you can put stuff on a boat. So what does advancing the timeline mean? Advancing the timeline is like when you do have a design calendar. You know, you have to have the difference between air freight is if you bring your merchandise in by air, it takes you 10 days. If it, you bring it in by boat, it takes you 35 days. So you have to be able to have a calendar that and show your customers and make your purchases in advance that you have an extra 25 days to bring it here by boat. Well, that saves you about 7 or 8%. That's huge. So, you know, whatever the business is, for instance, if you had a $100,000 business and you save 8%, that's eight grand. So my financial background immediately let me know that mm -hmm. we weren't doing something right because I saw like my biggest expense was an air freight and going to airlines and paying for gasoline for airplanes. So, you know, that was, that was the first time I said to myself, man, you knew what to look for and I was happy about that. That was many years ago. And then, you know, just having, I think that I encourage everybody, even in, you know, a lot of designers and I'm, I keep all my staff open. Anything you want to know about the financial aspect of this, I'm an open book. I'll let you, you know, I'll, I'll explain anything you want to know, how anything works. And a lot of people have come to me and said to me, how does this work? How does that work? You know, and I've explained it to them because I think it's important for everybody to know that, you know, we are creative. We do have a company, but there is a financial portion of it as well. A lot of designers, I feel like, are people who are starting out their lines. Some people that I've seen, they have been very interested in the design aspect and haven't really been paying attention to the finances. What would you say to somebody who's starting out in, in regards to being able to balance both that left and, and that right brain? I would say that if you're much more creative, please, you know, please do not forget about the, you know, the financial side and you know, the, the number side. It's, it's extremely important because you know, you know, money goes quickly and you have to make a lot of really, really good decisions. And I would say to the other person, if you know, you're in this business and you just finance, you also gotta be a little, uh, a little elastic in the fact that you gotta let some of the creative things take over you know, and not always just worry about the bottom line because if you don't make, if you don't go to Asia and you get a custom jersey for, for Biggie, you might not be sitting here in this interview right now because <laughs> So you got to, you know, that's, that's where you got to judge what's important. It's a give and a take. Yeah, it's a give and a take. You got it. Wow. I was born and raised in Queens, and then I moved to Long Island for high school. Okay. And what high school did you attend? Great Neck North. I have a sister. She's two years older than I am. Okay. I can't tell you her age. She'll be upset. Yeah. No worries. No worries. So you're from Long Island. You went to University of Arizona. How did you end up there? 
It's far from New York. Yeah, just wanted to get away, saw the weather, wanted to do it. <laughs> okay. What was your first job out of college? My first job out of college actually was in retail leasing. Leasing real spaces. Estate. Okay, yes, real estate. but retail. Okay. So I worked for a company in Manhattan, and I work, they sent me, used to send me out to the boroughs. And I used to go to streets like Fordham Road and Pitkin Avenue and all the places in the Bronx, Queens, and, you know, Austin, you know, Austin Street. And I found myself, while I was supposed to be canvassing space, they say canvassing is supposed to be looking for empty stores yes. to then bring to the person you report to. And he could say, like, wow, that's a good space, and then try and call somebody to lease it. I found myself loitering in Dr. J's all the time. I just, whatever it was, I was attracted to sneakers and clothing. And, you know, I just wait for the new, every time I was out there, I was loitering. And I just said to myself, like, here I am in real estate. I don't really have a, I don't really like this. I want to get a job in, you know, I, I, I love clothing. I want to, I love Nike, Adidas. I like this world. So I, I picked up a DNR. I interviewed for a position and I got a job in sales as assistant salesperson at a company. And that's how I started in sales. That's quite the journey. Where does your inspiration for entrepreneurship even come from? For me, I was working in sales, and I was working for a company that was, was doing pretty okay. And then all of a sudden, like so a lot of the designs we had weren't working so great. And they were based out of Seattle, Washington, and I was, you know, in New York. And I decided, you know, here's where a little bit of my real estate background came. I said I was going to canvas or look around in stores or shop the stores, so to, so to speak. And I started, you know, buying my own stuff at vintage stores and trying to get stuff just so I would have stuff to sell. A lot of my stuff that I was, you know, buying as samples and started, you know, noodling around with ended up doing quite, quite well because, quite honestly, my company was based out of Seattle, Washington. I was downtown, you know, on Lower Broadway watching where the trends and everybody, where they all started in the better boutiques or the kids on the street. And I was actually much younger than even going to clubs. Sounds like a long time ago, me going to clubs, but actually going to clubs, <laughs> seeing what people were wearing and saying like, wow, there's trends going on here. And I was sending all this information out to my company in Seattle and then they would start working on it and it started to become successful. And at that point I said to myself, wow, I have a little bit of a knack of forecasting or looking at, I mean, I wouldn't really say forecasting because if you know you go downtown or you go to A Street you know, or you walk you know, lower Broadway and you see like 20 person with a flannel shirt on, you gotta say to yourself, man, I think flannel shirts are gonna be popular or you know, whatever the look is, whether it's a flight jacket from two years ago, you, know, you gotta kinda smell the trends and that's what I was trying to do. And we got involved and you know, we, we started to do better. And I realized at that point, like, wow, I have a little bit of a knack for this. This is something that I'm really, really interested in. And one day I'd like to probably have my own line or collection or brand or whatever you wanna call it. Mm. So from canvassing stores to selling your own stuff yeah. and then taking off. Something that you said that I thought was really interesting is being able to forecast trends. They say that things come out in London, you know, before the trends really start overseas. Uh, how do you feel about that, being that you are a trendsetter, that you've helped to initiate some trends? I think years ago, most of the trends used to come out of Europe mm -hmm. and the, the trends over in Europe, what they were wearing there. Mm -hmm. They would translate easily here. I don't really feel that, you know, as strongly today. Um, I think right now what you're seeing is you're seeing, you know, you see trends start from, you know, all different places. But right now, I think we're on the fact of like trends in our marketplace is really coming from the designer levels. People are looking at all the runways and all the, you know, at the design shows and taking looks and taking stuff, you know, the, you know, the Balmains, the Valentinos and stuff like that and making their influence and, and bringing it into a, you know, more of a commercially viable 
product, and that ends up a lot in stores like Zara and H&M and our markets of what we do. You being a clothing designer, uh, where do you shop at? I'm so overclothed by the time I leave. I've looked at so <laughs> many shirts and pants and patterns and everything else. By the end of the day, I've had enough. But if there are you know, certain stores that I really like to shop in, I would probably say probably J. Crew is a store I really like a lot. It's the clothes are very plain. The quality is pretty good. And the price on it isn't ridiculous. It's probably a little overpriced. But then again, I know what you manufacture stuff for. But I think they, in fairness to everything, I think it's, it's pretty fair. Mm-hmm. You know, so... For me, you know, that's probably one of the stores I really, really like. Okay. Because I know, like, we've had conversations before. It's when I was much younger. <laughs> but you, you always told me, like, you're very particular. You wear a certain jean, and you love this jean. You wear a certain shirt, yeah. and you wear a certain pair of shoes. Like, very, yeah. very simple. Yes. And uh, I've also witnessed your humility and the fact that I've seen people come in and ask for you. And you'd be like, hey, man, I'm just an intern here. Or you say something like that, or I've seen you offer to buy someone else lunch because you're on your way out. And I, I feel like I've worked in different environments, and you see differences from CEOs. How did you learn to be so humble? I don't really know how to, to answer that. I just, for me, if I'm going to the store and getting a sandwich and there's other people that are at the table and they, they didn't eat lunch or they possibly didn't, what's the big deal about asking somebody if they want a sandwich too? And I don't, I don't really look at that as some great accomplishment. I look at that or, or something really worthwhile to even talk. I just think it's just common decency. I'd like to think that if they were getting a sandwich and they knew that I didn't eat they, and they were going downstairs, I'd like to think that they would ask me if I wanted anything. You know, I just think that some of that stuff is just common decency. If people come in here, no matter who I am, and they come to the office and they're going to sit down and their customers they might be thirsty or to take their coat. I think just think that that's common. You get them water, or get them something to drink, and, you know, hang up their coat. It's, it's you know, I just think that, that that's just good common decency. I don't think it's anything exceptional. I think that what I've done is when I look back on it, I'm extremely proud of all the companies. I'm more proud of all the people that I've seen grow inside the companies, people who start as interns, people like yourself, who is interned and now doing great things as a motivational speaker. And I like to think that I played, like to play maybe a small part in either giving an opportunity or something, you know, that we shared together and watch people really grow. That's where, you know, it becomes extremely, really rewarding for me, watching assistant designers, you know, become like, you know, head designers and watching people from like 22 years old into becoming 35 and, you know, watching them marry with kids now and purchasing houses like that, that, you know, that's what makes me get up in the morning and be like, man, that makes me feel good. Who are some of the people that have actually worked under you that have now gone on to do some amazing things? Um, the biggest. And what are they doing? Well, I like, you know, there's some people who start as assistant designers like Courtney Walker, who's the design director for Staple, one of the brands that I'm a partner of with Jeff Staple. Um, he came in as a as associate designer at a Nietzsche 13, 14 years ago, and he's a design director. He's done amazing things. My Most of my senior designers started off. They've been with me for eight to ten years. They've done really well. I would say career-wise, though, one of the things I'm most proud of, I had a guy that, very strangely, i never forget the day. He, it was raining out. The guy came in. He was soaking wet, and he said his name. He's, he said, he, are we hiring anybody? And it was just something about the guy I was like, I kind of felt bad for, but I also saw something, you know, something about him, the way he presented himself, and, and he had a very, he had a very, very nice way about him. 
I was, you know, and I said, no, we're not really hiring now. And he was like, oh, okay. And I said, you know what? Wait here. I finished what I was doing. I came back 15 minutes later. And I went to look at his book and I just wanted to give him a certain amount of time. And, you know, because I felt that, you know, maybe because it was raining and I felt bad. I don't know why, but I, I came back. I spent some time with him. And at that, you know, at that time, you know, Aniche was a growing company that needed some people. So I put him in an entry level position. I gave him an entry level position in design. His name is Jimo Wong. He is now the creative director for Brand Jordan. I believe that's his title. I might be off of that. That's one that I'm extremely proud of. He worked for me for six years. He, when he started with us, he can only freehand draw. He didn't have to use Illustrator. Wow. And he self-taught himself Illustrator at night. He was extremely hardworking and he was a pretty talented designer. And he, you know, I could see why he's done so well because he had a very nice way about him and he was good at what he did. I like to think that you know, he probably would have been successful anyway, but I like to think maybe I had a little something to do with, with, with some of his success. Well, what are the things that you look for? Because that's, that's kind of like a happenstance. But if, say someone's coming and they want to be employed by you, what are some of the things that you look for in a quality em- employee? It depends on the, the position because every different position has different requirements. I mean, you know, production people, you're looking for somebody that is very much a straight shooter. You know, every job requirement is different. So that's a kind of a, a question that had to be really targeted. But some of the things I like to think are most important is do I think the person I'm sitting across, do I feel comfortable around them? Do you think that they would fit in this environment? But once again, you never know when you interview somebody. You just try and go with your gut and, you know, hopefully you make the right decision. And most of the time, I've had a lot of success at, you know, the people that we've hired and gone on to good things. And sometimes, uh, some haven't worked out, just like anything else. How important is attitude when, when hiring or when, with people in your work environment? Attitude is stre- extremely important in your work environment. I, I haven't had many interviews where somebody's really displayed a poor attitude because most people are coming in here to get a job. Right. So it probably wouldn't behoove them. Otherwise, they'd be, you know, to come in here with a poor attitude. Right. But, you know, most of the people that work here, if you, you know, do have a good attitude. And when some people don't have a good attitude, it's probably not going to work out. How many times did you doubt yourself when you, before you reached this pinnacle of success with Nietzsche? Like, what was that like? You know, times where you were kind of like, I don't know. Is this the right thing? Did you ever have any thoughts like that? If so, how did you overcome them? Or Yeah, well, there's a lot of times you had self-doubt. One of the reasons why I'm so driven is because whatever that feeling is when, it, when it's not going well, I want to stay away from that. So I work really hard, and I tr- try and stay away from that feeling. But, you know, there's been collections along the way that have just, you know, you thought something was a good trend, and you thought it was really right, and it was really wrong. And, you know, you don't sleep at night at that kind of thing. You have trouble falling asleep. You toss and turn a little bit. So for me at this point, like, I really want to stay away from that. That's like, you know, that's like touching a hot stove for me. I wanted to stay away from that as far as I can. So what we do for that is we, you know, we work. But in any business, there's always been some self-doubts. But, you know, then you try and take a couple of deep breaths and you say to yourself, you know, like, okay, you know, this is the problem. How do we fix it? You know, this collection isn't good. Okay, can we go into immediate action? What's the best plan we can make? You know, or any business problem you have. I mean, most of the stuff you got to, you know, some of it is beyond your control. And some of those things, whether it's, you know, you know, environment or weather or business conditions, you know, if people aren't going into the store because it's too warm, then, you know, and they'd rather go to the beach, you know, in August as opposed to buying fall clothes. I can't do anything about that. But what I can do something about is to try and make sure that I have the right colors, the right, you know, the right trends, the right, you know, right fabrics. And if I feel good that my eyes tell me that's going to we tried as hard as we can, 
to, to put that type of product out there, then I feel good about that. Now you oversee how many brands? Three. Three. How do you balance work and life? Because you're married, you have two daughters. Yes. How do you balance work and life? I put in my work day and I go home and then I put on my dad hat. Work and life for me is really, there's work and then there's family and there's really not much in between. And I'm okay with that. Although my daughters are leaving for college next year and now... Congratulations. Thank you. Because I have twin daughters and they're leaving at the same time, there will be a little void. So to me, when I say work... I put, in a, you know, I put in a nice amount of work during the week, and then it's all family after that. I really, the past, you know, the past 15 to 20 years, I didn't cultivate a lot of friendships and a lot of hobbies, and I'm okay with that. I, okay. you know, I can look back. Do I have some regrets? Yeah, I do. I wish that I spent some more time with some friends who were going on a vacation or doing something. I, you know, I wish that I'd stayed in touch more and let, didn't let some relationships dissolve, but not at the expense of, you know, of providing for my family and making sure that my family is good and the, me- the times and memories that I had with them will uh, definitely surpass any vacation I might have missed out on. But I do miss some of the friendships that I had to sacrifice a little bit. You're telling me how important family is. Was this something that was instilled in you by your parents? Or like, where did this, this actual desire just to be you know, family first, family and work, family and work, like, where did that come from? <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not sure. I had a nice family growing up, but not extremely, extremely close-knit. For me, whatever I ch- choose to do, I've always tried to give 100%. So, you know, whether it was my job, I always try and give 100%. Whether it was my when I became a husband, I try to give, you know, my wife 100% and do the best I can for her. And when I had kids, I wanted to be the best dad I could be. I just, you know, that's just what's important to me. So, you know, I can't spread myself too thin. I'm focused on very few things, and I like to think that I, you know, give my best effort at those things, and I'd rather just be really solid at that than be spread around on a million different things. What is your strategy in setting goals and reaching new highs? I don't really, I don't think that far in advance. For me, it's like I'm very much, I I try and live my principles, you know, by, I, I try and stay in the moment, you know, I... I just, I just, I work really by a day-by-day basis. I mean, I have a plan for the year. I put together a budget, and then it works backwards. But besides that plan and meeting once a month with financiers and, you know, and, and my CFO um, and discussing, you know, the nuts and bolts of what it would be, I really don't think about it. I just stay in the day-to-day, and I just try and, you know, I try and work through each day, and I just feel that that's, the, you know, the best way. But there are some times when I try and be strategic, you know, and think that think in advance, but that's either like with a new brand opportunity or where the marketplace is going, you know, I, I do that, but, you know, I don't sit and just say, like, what do I want to, you know, accomplish this year? I kind of stay in the moment and just build day by day. Maybe that's, you know, narrow-minded. Maybe I need to, you know, maybe I need to work on that as I'm addressing it. But for me, I'm okay with that. Do you have a favorite quote or slogan that you live by? Um, Treat others how you want to be treated. How do you handle naysayers or people, you know, who, who have negative things to say to you or at all? I think everybody's entitled to their opinion. You know, I, I like good open dialogue. I mean, trust me, in, in having the brands and having some of the success that I've had, you know, a lot of people really don't tell you the way sometimes they really they, they really should or tell them the way they're feeling, you know, because I, I don't know why. But I, I'm, I'm always welcome to constructive criticism. It bothers me, actually, quite honestly. But it's okay to be bothered by that because if you weren't bothered by that, if somebody, you know, saying that I didn't like this, I didn't like that, what you did, 
if it didn't bother you, it means you didn't really care a lot about it. So I am sensitive in that way, but then I try and take a step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, is that a valid point? Is that very valid? Yeah. You know what? The line had too much heavy weight for that time, you know, and, you know, then you got to address it and make mistakes, take the feedback and use it constructively going forward. So Evan, you're very focused, family and work. How often do you take vacations? I take two a year. I usually take off the Christmas, New Year holiday, and then I take a week in the summer. You have any uh, favorite destinations? Um, no, I like to try a few different places. I mean, you know, there's, it's, it's a big world out there. This year I'm going to uh, Cabo San Lucas, which I've never been to, so I'm very interested in, in doing that. Yeah. And most of the time I like to go to either Miami or to Los Angeles. Okay. Now, when you're going on vacation, are you going with your wife and your daughters, or is it just you? How, how's it go? The summer one is usually me and my wife, and the winter one is usually me and my daughters oh. and my wife, my whole family. Okay. Awesome. What has been the most challenging aspect of entrepreneurship for you in running these, these companies, if you can put it into one, or what has been some of the challenging aspects? There's been so many. There's so many different challenges. There's so many different moving parts in all of them, but... You know, I think I think one of the, the toughest things that I'm facing most recently is the decline of the brick and mortar stores in America, you know, over the past decade and that starting to move itself into more of an e-com presence and what that is. So it's been learning, you know, it's been learning something new. That's been a big challenge. Going back to Parrish, now you, you just started Parrish, you brought a few people over from Iniche. You didn't want to break them, but you wanted to make sure that you had a solid team. What did that look like, the early years of Parrish? You guys were in uh, one office over on uh, 36th Street. Mm -hmm. So, like, what was it like? It was, we were in, like, a 300-square-foot mini office. There was five guys in there, and there was just, just creating project, creating the new line and just staying focused on what we were trying to do, trying to, you know, talk about, you know, this, this first line that we have coming out has to be an amazing line. It has to have a different point of view, and our whole laser focus was on that. Every graphic, every T-shirt, every jean, what had to have, you know, had to fit into, like, a piece of a puzzle that we were trying to come to, to market with something that was something very unique. And hopefully we accomplish that. Parish has a lot of <coughs> slogans on, on the paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. What has been one of your favorites? For the land of the people, I mean, that one's okay. I like health, wealth, and wisdom. That's the one I love, man. You know? I love that one. And, you know, for, coming from me, it doesn't sound the most humble, but you have the health and the wisdom in there. I like that part. And I think that uh, you can look at it that if, if you are healthy and you have a lot of wisdom, you know, that, that is, then you are wealthy. Absolutely. Wealth can't always just be explained in terms of a monetary value. You said that one of the things that keeps you motivated is seeing other people succeed. Do you feel like you're wealthy in the success of others yeah. at this point? Yeah, it's, my, it's, it's one of my favorite things. My favorite thing is when I come in and I see somebody who started off as a receptionist inside the office, then move out of what I call out of the reception box, and then they move into a different aspect in the company. And I'd like to think that I think in every one of my companies right now, I have somebody that's, at, that's currently employed that started in the reception area that moved on. It's just every day when I walk in, I see the reception desk and there's someone there. I say to myself, I can't wait till they're out of the reception desk. Not that there's anything wrong with being a receptionist because it's an important part. But for me, it's important for that person, if they want to, to be able to grow into something else in the apparel business. 
if they don't want to, then that's fine. But most people use it as a tool to get a foot in the door. And that's the kind of person that we try and hire as a receptionist, somebody who has further aspirations that just isn't going to be content with being a receptionist. What three things would you tell someone who's looking to get into the apparel business and have a career similar to yours? Wow. I would tell them to make sure that they really love the apparel business, not just the aura of the the apparel business. I like to like... I follow these brands, I like these sneakers because there's not the glamour in it that you just see on the runway and you know and coming into a showroom and coming you know into the 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 initial contact with the clothes there's a lot of behind the scenes grunt work and a lot of late nights so to make sure you really have a passion for it because I think having a passion is for any business but especially the clothing business is probably priority number 1 is to have a passion I would say to them to try and you know, get as much research as they possibly can on what it is that they're trying to achieve as far as what type of product that they would like to have and what segment of the market. And the last thing I would say from a business side of things is your really is your business idea really one that can be profitable? Is it really a business or is it a hobby or a for lack of a better word, I say the word hobby, but I've met a lot of people who kind of like have an idea and it's on a whim, but does that idea make sense in a business format? So those are three things I would tell somebody. What three things would you tell someone who's looking to create their best life? I would tell them to love what you do, you know, to make sure that you have a passion, you know, for what you do, because if you love what you do, you never have to go to work. For me, I can only tell you that I remember being in high school and every Sunday night, I'd be so bummed because it would be Monday and I had to go back to school. I lived my adult life the past 25, 28 years I've been doing this. Sunday nights don't bother me. I don't care when I have to go back to work. You know, I really enjoy my job. I enjoy working with the people. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's really, and I think that that's really important. So... I would say that, you know, to treat other people as you want to be treated, as I've mentioned a couple of times before, I think that's an extremely important thing to treat people well if you'd like to be treated well. I don't think that there's any, you know, any great mystery behind that. I think that, you know, that that somewhat speaks for itself. And I think that the last thing is to really try and be, you know, if you can make sure that you're honest and direct with people. I really feel like, you know, especially in... Today, you know, and I work with a lot of young people, and I don't want to say that they're not honest or, you know, that people, but they're not direct. I think everybody, you know, uses, you know, technology, text message, you know, and, and, you know, email. There's nothing wrong with having a good old conversation and being honest and direct with somebody. I think that that's something that is, that is extremely important, and it's become a little bit of a lost art. You know, I think that that is somewhat important as well. So what's coming up next? You're over three brands. What are the three brands that you're over? Parish Nation, Born Fly and staple. So what's next for the brands? What, what is your vision? Um, the vision is to keep doing what I'm doing, just taking it one day at a time and watching them, you know, slowly, you know, become slow and steadily be, maintain their success and to continue for the ones that are, that, that still have some growth opportunities to, to make sure that we try and take advantage of the growth opportunities and then to possibly add uh, another one to the stable. Wow. 
Okay, now you just got me with a whole other question. You had Paris, you made Paris successful in its own right. Right. And then you moved on. Which line came next? Um, Born Fly. Born Fly. Was that a birth out of Paris, or how did that... Yes, it was a it was a birth at a parish. It so happened that I used to shop in a store called Vinnie Styles in Brooklyn, and they used to have these T-shirts called Born Fly, and I was like, man, what a cool little name! Wouldn't it be good if you can, you know, put that on a sweatshirt and other clothes and the name Born Fly, and people would probably like that. I met the guys, we we got together with them, and we decided to start an apparel brand. And that was some of this stuff isn't you know isn't really like very sophisticated. Right. You're in a store, you like it. You know, for me, the, the, the good thing that I have is I have, you know, I have the ability of having good manufacturing relationships so I can manufacture and I have a good distribution partners at retail. So that if I see a good idea out there and I see something, I can help bring it to fruition. So I met the owners of Vinnie's. They wanted to make it a brand. We partnered together and now we have a brand. I'm happy that you demystified that because oftentimes people think that partnerships can be this whole big thing. And in reality, you just like the T-shirt at a company. You had something to bring to the table and they had you know, something to bring to the table as well. So it formed a amicable partnership. Before, I think before you asked me like what my favorite quote was and I said, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. Yes. I have another thing that I say a lot which mm-hmm. I think helps simplify things is like I like to play checkers, not chess. Meaning that like checkers is a really easy game, and he's, <laughs> chess is very sophisticated. So for me, you know, I like to keep things very simple. Some of this stuff doesn't have to get so convoluted. You can keep things in a very simple fashion, similar how you chose up sides on a playground when you were young. Like if you just figured it out, you know, it's like what's fair. And if you can go into something and say to yourself like, what's fair for you? What's fair for everybody? And everybody can feel good about it, just like when you chose the sides at recess, it, it tends to work itself out, I and mean, you don't need to overcomplicate it. Hence, you know, I try and play checkers, not chess. Dude, I love that. I love that. Okay, so now you got Born Fly. How long has Born Fly been around? Born Fly, five years. Five years. And how long did it take you to expand into Staple? I think it was a year later, just somebody sent me an email and said, this is an interesting brand. I think this gentleman might be looking to do something. Are you interested? I looked at it. I said to myself, wow, that the guy who, you know, the guy Jeff Staple would be interested in meeting me and discussing this. That's pretty cool. I knew Jeff from, you know, he was a tremendous collaborator. He's famous for the pigeon dunks. If anybody knows about that, in 2005, Jeff did a collaboration with Nike SB and he came up with the pigeon dunks and it was a, one of the first. This sneakers, is a shoe. The shoe, okay. yes, okay. by Nike. And it became one of the first phenomenon shoes that were ever released with the lines and the release dates and all of that. It was on the cover of the New York Post because it was Bedlam, and I read about it, and I was like, wow, he has something. And his moniker was a pigeon, which I thought was pretty cool, and his brand staple. And I met him. We, we went for lunch. We, we ate hamburgers, and he was just a really nice down-to-earth guy. And I was like, that's a guy I can work with. He told me what his vision was. I thought that I could be an asset to him. And we, you know, like I said, we both formed a partnership at that time, and made, it was just real simple, just eating a couple of burgers and, you know, drinking a few sodas. And, you know, he, he wanted his smaller brand to become bigger. And I had a good uh, reputation for building some bigger brands at that point. So it's just real, real simple. What does it take for somebody to come and present you with, with an idea in order for them to, you to pick up their brand? Anybody can send me an email. I'll look at anything. And, you know, if it's something that I'm interested in, I'll, I'll let you know. There's two aspects. Anybody at any time can, can email me or say to get together, and I'll give them any help that I can. I have an open-door policy to anybody that would like help with something. 
it, you know, I don't, I don't mind taking the time. I've mo met most people who want to do it. I like to mentor. It's something I really enjoy. It's called giving back, which I'm totally proud to do and excited to do. And then from a business perspective, if someone shoots me an idea and I think it's good and I think it's good enough to meet, then we'll set up a meeting. It's, you know, it's not too hard. But I'd like to at least see what their vision is. And, you know, some people are wary of that to send what their vision is, you know, through email and then you have it or whatever else it may be. But I cannot physically meet everybody while running the businesses, but I can definitely get to an email exchange and, you know, try and try and see if there's a meeting of the minds that we can then eventually meet in person. Okay. What is the, what is the email address best for them to contact you? Um, edavis at parish-nation.com. Okay. Evan. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much. I know this is something that you don't normally do. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking well, the time to speak with me. Yes, not really in my comfort zone to talk, uh, you know, talk media. But however, you know, we work together and it's something that uh, you did. And I actually enjoyed doing it. So I thank you for thinking of me. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you taking your time as well to... Uh, to make this happen. Cool. All right, Create Your Life Series family. That was Evan Davis, CEO of Parish Nation, Staple, and Born Fly. So be blessed, be well, create your life.